Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. The Wendigo is a creature of Canadian First Nation Algonquian folklore, a resident of the forests of Nova Scotia. Like vampires or werewolves, the Wendigo has been a human being before. Before, that is, it was transformed into a grotesque monster possessed of fantastic spiritual and physical power. In the 19th century and possibly before, stories emerged from among the Algonquian tribes of people who became obsessed with consuming human flesh that ultimately transformed them. Scholars debated the existence of Wendigo psychotics, people driven to a manic form of cannibalism by famine. And today, on Occult Confessions, we dig in to the mystery of the Wendigo. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of our Secret Order. I am here with our Grandmaster, Olivia Litterall. What's going on? You know, uh, just thinking about Until Dawn. That's the only Wendigo reference I have. Is that a, the video game? Yeah. 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 But what happens? Uh, well, it depends. It's like all about like consequences and actions and people die if you fuck up. Do you eat them? Uh, well, there are Wendigos, like, but it, well, it's a whole thing. I don't want to give it away if someone, <laughs> is that a spoiler? <laughs> like, And Lucy Bond, <laughs> neophyte of the order. Hello. What's up, Lucy? Um, not much. I'm really excited to learn. I did a quick little Wikipedia search because I didn't recognize the <laughs> word yeah. Wendigo. So now really? I'm um, a little more well-versed. But excited, excited to become an expert. Yeah, Wendigo's. Uh, it, it, Olivia mocks me for this, but I do watch the Teen Wolf TV show, uh, as does her sister Brianna, and they do surface occasionally on on there. So uh, Wait, they, really? they pop up here and there. Yeah, they really do. They're huh. white people though, so it's a little <laughs> confusing. Oh. <laughs> we, the members of oh, the, the Secret, Secret Order, Order, Order of Alchemical Al- Al- Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, then. Uh, okay, Olivia, open up those plugs. Plug! 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 Is that you? What is that? Is it, was that in your, in your house? My voice? No, 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 no. There was like a, a motor. It's, it's tractors. People just be riding <laughs> their tractors around, Rob. I don't know People what to tell you. And their tractors. <laughs> oh, COVID. Uh, so <laughs> we want to thank uh, Kevin M., uh, Corey S, Aaron S, Caitlin and Lauren M, who have all joined the patron crew. Very grateful to have them joining <sighs> the family. And we want to thank Moseo and Kaylee for the pledge bump. Um, so much appreciated there. Welcome. Thank you. We are also coming to the end of our Dark Pool series, uh, which Olivia and Lucy are both featured prominently on. So uh, one more plug for the Dark Pool. Ooh. And uh, Olivia, what anything else you want us to? We got three plugs. What's the last thing you want to bring in here? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, merch is that okay. always merch. We've always got merch. <laughs> I mean, now we also have stickers and magnets. So if if you buy something or you join Patreon, you might you might get something. We have magnets now. 
We do. Yes, yeah. girl. We got we got two different types technically, but if we could see each other face to face, you you could have a magnet. <laughs> yeah. One day. One day soon. So we, here's the caveat on on the uh, the little you know doohickeys that we send in the mail. You do have to if you join Patreon, you do have to put your mailing address and and then we'll send it. <laughs> we have to know where you live. <laughs> Some folks don't like to give their mailing address. That's fine, and and yeah. uh, we don't we don't need to send you a magnet. But if you're currently a patron and uh, you would like to receive a magnet, just uh, you can send us your address and and we'll get that over to you. All right, let's close up the plugs. Plug, plug, and plug. We're going to start with Algernon Blackwood. Um, He was an early 20th century weird fiction writer. We usually associate weird fiction with H.P. Lovecraft, but there was actually a small collection of folks who were writing in this genre of weird horror. Um, And Blackwood wrote on, uh, he wrote probably one of the most famous fictional takes on the Wendigo. It was his novella simply called The Wendigo. Blackwood tells the story of four men a seminary student and his medical doctor uncle and their two hunting guides who are looking to shoot some moose in northwest Ontario. The plot gets going at the point where the two hunters pair off with a guide each and go their separate ways. The focus turns to seminary student Simpson and his guide, the French-Canadian Defago, who together sense the presence of something evil as they track moose through the wilderness. Defago seems to sense something And Simpson seems to sense that Defago senses something, but nobody wants to say much about it. It's all under the surface. And so in the dark hours of the early morning, they hear the sound of a voice crying out Defago's name through the wilderness. And Defago cuts off and runs out of his tent, screaming about his feet, feeling as if they are on fire. Simpson tracks Defago and discovers his footprints running alongside much larger tracks, not quite like moose tracks or bear tracks, but rather the tracks of something strange and unfamiliar. More strange is the fact that Defago's footprints gradually come to resemble those of the larger creature until they disappear entirely, as if both Defago and the creature lifted off the ground." Terrified, Simpson returns to the base camp, where he meets the second hunter, his uncle, Dr. Cathcart, and the second guide, Hank, as well as their cook, uh, a native person. Dr. Cathcart tries to calm his nephew, encouraging him to get some sleep, and he and Hank plan a way to find where Defago has gotten to. With Simpson still spooked but somewhat recovered, they all set out together to find the missing Defago. As they wander the forest with Hank calling out after the other guide, something, something passes by above them. Something went past through the darkness of the sky overhead at terrific speed. Something of necessity very large, for it displaced much air. While down between the trees there fell a faint and windy cry of a human voice, calling in tones of indescribable anguish and appeal. Oh, oh, this fiery height. Oh, oh, my feet of fire. My burning feet of fire! They call out for Defago, and he arrives, his body grotesquely transformed with his skin hanging off of his muscles, emitting an awful smell. He warms himself by the fire, and Simpson notices his feet, which had become dark and oddly masked. And then Defago disappears into the woods. Each of them manages to rationalize the experience, although it is, at its heart, beyond rationalization of any kind. When they return to their base camp, they discover Defago there again, fully human once more, but badly changed by his experience. This time it was the real man, though incredibly and horribly shrunken. 
on his face was no expression of any kind whatever. Fear, welcome, or recognition. He did not seem to know who it was that embraced him, or who it was that fed, warmed, and spoke to him the words of comfort and relief. Forlorn and broken beyond all reach of human aid, the little man did meekly as he was bidden. The something that had constituted him individual had vanished forever. Two weeks later, Defago dies, and so ends the mysterious tale of the Wendigo. What do you think of that? So he like he became a Wendigo, or this is a, this is an yeah this is an evil spirit that we transform into. You know, like you get the vampire bite and you become the vampire, right? But we don't know the catalyst for Defago's transformation. He just heard this call, books it out of the tent, and next thing we know, he's been Wendigoed up. But then he gets unwendigoed, uh, and then he dies. So no like cannibalism yet. Yeah, we're, we're, we're coming up to that. Uh, Blackwood's story reflects a series of themes in Wendigo legend. First, it's about a First Nations belief, and it's written by a white man. So First Nations refers to, is the Canadian term for the First Peoples. So the Native people of Canada are called the First Nations. Like in America, we call them Native Americans or American Indians. Now, the fact that it's a First Nations belief and it's being written by a white man is fairly common in the history of the Wendigo. You got me? This is the white Mm. man telling the American Indian story, or the First Nation story, Native Canadian story. The journals of white missionaries and fur traders actually provide most of what we know today of Wendigo belief, going back all the way to the 18th century. So that's your first common thing. So it's an, the Algernon story is written by a white man about First Nations belief. The second thing that is common of Wendigo legend is that it takes place in northeastern Canada and revolves around the hunting of a moose, which Blackwood describes as scarce on the trip. So Blackwood's being sort of clever here. The party is failing at the hunt when Defago changes. Famine, as Olivia was asking about, is brought on by an inability to hunt down game, and is often the key catalyst to the change. So Blackwood has simply modernized this. Defago's party won't starve if they don't bag a moose. They've, after all, brought along their own native cook who's got plenty of food, but it's also clear that they're unlikely to bag a moose. You see what he's doing? So he's using the, uh, the hunt to like mimic the, the condition of the 18th century. Right. Finally, Defago seems to feel his transformation before it comes on him, and he is unable to do anything to stop it. This becomes the key to unraveling the mystery of which came first, the Wendigo or the cannibal. Does a cannibal become a Wendigo, or does the belief that one is transforming into a Wendigo make someone a cannibal? We're going to dig into this a bit. You got me? My chicken and egg? Yeah, I also had that question, so... I mean, ultimately, as is traditional in a call confessions, don't look forward to a definitive answer, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, gonna... uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> We're going to root around in there. All right, so let's talk about the Native tradition as it has been articulated by uh, white writers, uh, really white journalists of various kinds from this time, from the early 18th, 19th century. Among America's Native people, the word Wendigo, in its various forms, has two predominant meanings. For the Cree and Ojibwa, it means cannibal monster. But interestingly, for the Fox, the Kickapoo, the Illinois, and the Miami, it means owl. That's so it very either different. Mean- yeah. Um, some Algonquian tribes believe that owl calls presage death. Oh, Jesus. Wow. Ooh. Oh, my. That's a lot. I have to think about that. And owls, like wendigos, are formidable predators. So it, it kind of makes sense. 
right? The owl swoops down in the night and you're dead if you're like a mouse or a squirrel or something. Mm-hmm. I do want to point out here, uh, because Olivia uh, is, has, since my child was born, has um, <laughs> had this theory <laughs> that my child is uniquely spooky and what did you, a natural witch. And oh, I, her, what, what do you think her favorite bird is? Uh, is it a raven or a crow? It's an owl. Oh, <laughs> I guess that way is what we're owls. talking about. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, said, weird. you led with the witch thing, so my mind is, yeah, okay. You overthought that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she also likes woodpeckers, but that's neither here nor there. Huh. Very spooky. She, <laughs> yes. <laughs> she does. I forgot. She does know the word owl, doesn't she? She's like, obsessed with owls, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So Jesuits in 17th century Canada made reference to the loup-garou, or werewolf, prowling the forests around Lac Saint-Jean. Traders at Hudson Bay came across a Cree group who believed the Waitiko came in search of their families, demanding a human sacrifice, much like the Minotaur of ancient Greek legend. So the Waitiko in the Cree tradition, as articulated by the Jesuits, is that it basically goes like from family to family and says, you know, give me one. No. Crees would get drunk in order to hunt the beast by following its tracks in the snow. I assume the getting drunk was, you know, part of like a altered state of consciousness to properly track the oh, beast. Okay. Maybe they just or, wanted know, to just have a good time scary. while hunting beasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's go kill a murderous monster and let's make a party out of it. Yeah. Okay. That'd be like <laughs> us going like drunk ghost hunting. You're right, yes. <laughs> that Except fun. that we believe that the ghost is going to kill us, could kill us. That's true. It if might. the ghost claims one of our family members every seven, so many years. We'll have to find out, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> At Fort Severn, there's the story of a man who went insane after having to resort to famine cannibalism. He was imprisoned and eventually executed by the Cree, uh, but the Cree continued to fear him on the belief that his mania would transcend death to seek new victims. Speaking of ghosts, it's conceivable in Cree tradition that the Wendigo or Whitico, after it's dead, could come back. Oh. Mm. Sort of like the vampire. Are you, are you going to tell us how to not make that happen? <laughs> well, I think just don't go to Nova Scotia. <laughs> All right, you heard it here. <laughs> but really, I think it's really of that region. So um, truth be told, you don't have to worry about the wind to go outside of Nova Scotia. Uh, but I, I understand it's a very lovely region, so I, I kind of would like to go. Anyway, in 1767, Alexander Henry recorded the story of an Ojibwa man who had eaten four relatives during a food crisis. So now we're going to get into some of this cannibalism. The man confessed what he'd done to the band of Ojibwa with whom Henry was traveling. At first, they were understanding of the man's plight, but they worried over legends that once a man had tasted human flesh, he would never be satisfied with ordinary food again. Those of you who are fans of Always Sunny may remember the episode where Dee and I think Charlie eat human flesh. Yep. Do you remember that? I do. Which one is that? Yeah, and, and uh, uh, Danny DeVito's character is taunting them that they will need to eat human meat. So there's a sort of wind, a Widigo episode of Always Sunny. Anyhow, uh, our friend, uh, well, not our friend, the, uh, the Ojibwa, uh, who had eaten four of his relatives, seemed uninterested in what they cooked for him back in 1767. Um, and he started making remarks about the children running around the camp. How fat they are, he'd say, admiring them. Oh my, what in the... F- Wrong on so many levels. <laughs> the yeah. Native, 
Yeah, not a good idea. Yes. Uh, whenever you start hear, hearing people talk like that, you got to do something. Uh, so the native people decided that he was a threat to the children and they ended up executing him. Yeah, that, that was a good call. In 1796, David Thompson, uh, no relation, or maybe a relation, how do I know, distant relation, <laughs> told of a Cree Wendigo named Whiskahoo, a survivor of famines who had never resorted to cannibalism. It's important to note there. While sipping grog, which is just rum and water, if you've ever wondered what grog is, <laughs> what the pirates are drinking. That's nasty. I don't know uh, about that. And traders would actually give grog to the Cree who came to trade with them, um, this particular Widigo, Whiskahoo, would say, I must be a man-eater. He would use the word niwitugo, niwitugo. So there's a lot of different pronunciations for Wendigo. This self-identified Wendigo was executed by his companions after they traveled three years together. So he had oh, never wow. eaten human flesh, but he believed that he must be a man-eater. And then eventually they, they just executed him. I wonder what what made that happen. Like, what was the switch? I don't think he ate anybody or we would have come down. That would have been part of the story. I think it just sort of probably drove him mad. Writing around eight, the belief drove him mad. You see what I mean? So writing around 1800, George Nelson described Saltu and Cree taken to sudden paroxysm or violent fits in which they spoke an incoherent language. Cree worried over being taken by these windigo fits and those afflicted sometimes begged their friends to put them out of their misery before they could indulge their hunger for human flesh. So, I mean, essentially, it's the same idea. You become crazed, and you either are executed or you beg to be killed so that you don't kill somebody else, and you have to live with the the guilt and horror of that. But that's only after you eat the human flesh, right? No, in these cases, they didn't. So they were first struck by the desire to do so, and they were killed before they had the opportunity to do it. They just sort of became crazed over this obsession. So it actually cuts both ways. We have stories where they eat the flesh and then they become crazed and stories where they become crazed and then they desire the flesh. What I'm getting here is like eating human flesh is just not good for your mental health. First and foremost, yeah. Or thinking about it too much, even if you don't eat it. Mm -hmm. In 1896, Francis Beaton met a Woods Cree named Mapanin at the trading outpost in Trout Lake, Alberta. Mapanin told Beaton that he was being haunted by a devil who was telling him to eat his children. Oh my God, that's intense. Uh, You must be starving. I'll get you something to eat. I can't eat. A dose of castor oil, perhaps. My heart is freezing. We might pray together. I must be a cannibal. I will be. You must keep your eyes on me. Do not trust me. Not for a moment. I will kill some of you. Or all of you. You must hang me first. Or or shoot me. It's the only way to save yourselves. Don't have to tell me twice. Roger Vandersteen, a missionary in Wabasca, Alberta, shared the story of a female Wendigo who was thin oh. to the point of anorexia. Yeah, oh, so we have both men bad. and women. Uh, well, she was thin because she refused to; she couldn't eat anything but human flesh, and refused to eat human flesh. Hmm. Oh, that's respectable then. The devil wants me and will change me to a Wendigo. I'm going to go away to the forest. At any moment, I could kill someone. Frozen. 
After an extended stay in a Western hospital, the doctors managed to convince her that they were capable of curing her condition, and sh- this woman apparently recovered eventually. Oh. So, yeah. It's a, that's a nice story. It's so one of the few. come back from the Wendigo. In this case, this woman did, but a lot of cases they did not. They, they were just sort of overcome by the obsession. One of the most famous cases is of Swift Runner, a Plains Cree who had a camp 25 miles from the Hudson Bay Company's trading post at Athabasca Landing. In the winter of 1879, Swift Runner's family fell on hard times. Game was scarce, and his wife and children struggled to provision the camp where the family was living. At their first camp, his eldest son starved to death, and the family buried him. After that, Swift Runner resolved to let no more of the family starve. At their second camp, the family killed and ate his second eldest son. Then, Swift Runner killed his wife and remaining children, consuming a total of six family members. After Swift Runner arrived in the Hudson Bay Company's camp in the spring, he explained that his family had died, committed suicide, or dispersed. A company of police followed him back to his two camps and discovered the truth in the remains. The case of Swift Runner shows clear evidence of voluntary rather than famine cannibalism, and I'll tell you why. The family was likely starving when they killed the second eldest son. The police could see as much when they discovered the emaciated body of the first son who the family had buried. They Remember, they didn't eat the first son, they only ate the second son. But the first son had already died of starvation. So by the time they ate the second son, they were already in bad shape. However... Their camp was only a couple days' walk to the Athabasca trading post where they might have received some relief. If you could get to the trading post, people would feed you. Like, they wouldn't just let you starve. And even if starvation had immobilized the family for preventing them from making the journey, the killing and eating of the second son should have then allowed them to make the trip. Instead, Swift Runner murdered and ate the rest of the group. So having eaten one of their crew, they should have had the strength to get to Athabasca. You see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, six people is a lot of people to eat. Like, the, that's just a lot of meat. Yes. Uh, and I, don't, I don't know if he was eating the whole body. There were certainly some remains for the police to discover. Oh, okay. And he claimed that he hadn't eaten them, but I think it was clear when they visited the remains that he had eaten pieces of them. I, I mean, maybe he ate the whole person. I, it just doesn't come to us, Lucy, in the story. The case of Swift Runner shows the degree to which a Wendigo transformation is not brought on by famine cannibalism, but rather a kind of fatalistic descent into cannibalism that cannot be avoided, not because of the circumstances, but because of the psychology of the future Wendigo. As scholar Robert Brightman points out, the Wendigo transformation is often foreseen long before a human engages in anything like cannibalism. Often, the future Wendigo has prophetic dreams in which he or she sees themselves eating or being served human flesh. In other words, the future Wendigo knows before the change that the change is coming, and the change itself inspires the consumption of human flesh. Cannibalism does not make a Wendigo. A Wendigo makes a cannibal. You got me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. So I think that the, I guess I lied at the beginning, we sort of have a conclusion here, um, but it's, a, it's muddy. It's a bit muddy. Although most of these more dramatic cases ended in execution, the preferred treatment for people afflicted with the Wendigo spirit was a shamanic cure. So it is, so Lucy, it's possible to be cured, not just by your doctor, but possibly by a shaman. For many Wendigo believers, the transformation into a cannibalistic monster is a product of spirit possession. A medicine man would sweat, dance, and drum in order to drive that evil spirit away, a regimen that was often effective. 
It could be that a sorcerer witch or bad medicine person had worked in the opposite direction, mediating with the spirits to drive gain animals away and prompt a famine com- condition among a group and instigate a Wendigo transformation. So we sort of have battling shamans. Some shamans are trying to cure people of being possessed by the Wendigo spirit, and some people are trying to, um, it, you know, draw the Wendigo spirit in and get people to be possessed by creating famine conditions. So when you're starving, the Wendigo spirit sort of sees an opening and pops into your body and the transformation begins. All right, so we heard from the white people through history, and I guess through the through, through the native people, through the lens of the white people, um, but I actually was able to pull up the Cree perspective, so oh, actual good. Emic knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, we're done with the white people. <laughs> I mean, it's it's problematic. Certainly the white people are, you know, writing all this stuff down in 18th century, 19th century for us to be able to access. And they're writing it down in English or French or, you know, a language that we can translate. Whereas there's an oral tradition in a lot of these, these tribal groups. Um, so, you know, it doesn't come to us in this kind of form. Um, but this guy, Lewis Bird, who was a Cree storyteller, collected some stories. Um, he had been fascinated with his people's history since he was a child because he'd he'd grown up listening to his mother's traditional tales. And in the 70s, he toured the James and Hudson Bay region with a tape recorder, attempting to record First Nations elders. Uh, So this is the 1970s, very recent. So the oral tradition, right, is sort of kicked down to us over time. And and he's able to sort of collect the, you know, what, what exists right now. However, the elders were very shy about report, re- recording, performing for his tape recorder. So he had to learn the stories in the traditional way. They taught them orally, uh, and then he ended up recording them himself. Got me? So the elders are not going to sit down for a tape recorder, because that's not how they function. But he can sit down for his own tape recorder after he's memorized the tales from them. Uh, and actually, whatever, what ended up happening was the tapes started to degrade after a dozen years, so he did a second digital recording. And you can actually listen to that on the internet today. I'll give the link at the end, and, and we'll post it on our website. Cool. According to Bird, there are a variety of Witiko or Wendigo. Only one kind eats humans. So we're going to get into the different kinds of Wendigo spirits here. We've been The, the cannibal ones, I guess, are the sensational ones, but there's this, these, these other varieties. Bird says that the Wendigo legend teaches the value of conservation and of treating people well. So there's an environmental lesson to be learned here. Remember, it goes back to famine, right? So it's about, you know, shortage and lack of sustainability, theoretically, create the conditions for Wendigo. So there's a, a conservation message to this. So there are two causes for a Wendigo in, in the, from the native perspective. The first one we're familiar with, the sensational one, cannibalism. The horrors of the Wendigo are only visited on populations who run short of resources, which is why the native person only kills to survive and uses all parts of the animal. A person driven to cannibalism first loses their mind. They see the human as an animal and develop a craving for human flesh that will not pass even after they have survived. Bird says, it's just like being an alcoholic. The person's heart becomes icy and they lose all human feeling. The evil is so intense that others feel it in their spine when this Wendigo is near. If the Wendigo raises its voice, its victim will pass out, and this is how they incapacitate and murder the humans they eat. To destroy a Wendigo, it must not only be killed, but burned to ash, along with anything belonging to the person, and the spot must be left alone until it has healed and grown over on its own. Nature sort of has to claim the spot back. Oh, I like that. 
Yeah. And the burning, does that sound like anything else? Burning Sounds to like ash. vampire werewolf Yeah, yeah some vampire lore. So there, I, I think there is this like cross-cultural quality to this, that the Wendigo really has, you know, vampiric and werewolf qualities. And, and we can see that, you know, groups in complete, completely separated from each other develop similar traditions. I think that's fascinating. So Bird introduces a second way to become a Wendigo, which can also mean an evil spirit who torments the living. So that's another definition of Wendigo, evil spirit who torments the living. So the other way a Wendigo can be made is not just starvation or cannibalism, but abuse. Bird says a person, like an elder or an orphan child, might be abused by their family and wander off and become a superhuman Wendigo spirit and return to torment their tormentors. I want to emphasize that elder and orphan child, it's, it's these groups that, you know, sort of rely on caretakers that are apt to become the Wendigo, because these are the people who are most vulnerable to abuse. We know that in our own, in, in, in any culture, this is true. Elder abuse, child abuse, I mean, these terms spring right to mind. Lewis Bird not only gives a First Nations voice to the Wendigo legend, but brings it to the 20th century when he tells the story of a teenage girl whose father had passed sometime when she was very young. Her stepfather, he says, is about to get very dark. So um, I think there's a warning, uh, there's an E warning on this episode to begin with because it's about people eating each other. Uh, But this is about to get even darker. So warning. Her stepfather desired her. Um, And this made her mother jealous of her, which created a kind of double abuse from both the stepfather and the mother. She met a boy who she wanted to marry, but her mother wouldn't let her marry the boy. She got so frustrated and angry that she screamed and kept on screaming, her hair standing on end, tearing off her clothes, and she ran out of the house and down into the riverbed 35 feet deep. An old woman, who I believe is the source of the story, uh, going by the name Amy, chased after her, knowing the Wendigo transformation was coming. She knew that if she could touch the girl, she could stop the change. But the girl ran too fast, flying like a pirate over the cliff. She was naked by the time she was midway down the embankment, and she went down to the cold river with the ice just breaking up. When the old woman was only halfway down the embankment, the girl was jumping into the water until it was over her head. The authorities never found a body because, the old woman said, she dissolved, becoming a pure Wendigo spirit. She became pure spirit. Any family that came to stay in this area where the girl ran into the river would find themselves haunted and driven away. Bird himself stayed there with a friend, and although Bird was not afraid, his friend didn't sleep the whole night long, for fear. So from a native perspective, the Wendigo is not just a consequence of an obsession, but is an obsession born of a life lesson. A person or group who fails to live in the traditional way with conservation at the heart of their consumption is liable to either become or spur the creation of a Wendigo by limiting the resources available to the community. But a Wendigo can also be the product of emotional starvation. Neglecting or otherwise depriving someone of love can catalyze an irreversible transformation that comes back to haunt the community later, as in the story of this girl who ran into the cold river. The Wendigo is a consequence for individuals who fail to think of others in the way they choose to live their lives. 
we are all responsible for making sure our fellow humans have the physical and emotional support they need to get through their lives as best they're able to. That's a good lesson for these times, isn't it? I was about to say it's very, very, yeah, yeah. what you said. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of Wendigos maybe running around right now. And we could be making them, yeah. If we are not looking after each other, if we're not getting over the things that divide us and looking for ways to connect with each other and, and share that love, uh, I, I think you're right, Lucy. Kind of reminds me like a little bit of like a poltergeist, but if your poltergeist then like possessed you. Oh, you mean the, the teenage girl and, and her yeah. dissolving? It, well, sort of, yeah. just the whole, I don't know, when you're talking about like the more... The, the second side to it that you were talking about, yeah. I don't the know. emotional starvation. So the, the emotional yeah. pain, you mean, yielding this spirit. Yeah, like this, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in that case. I, I thought the possession, I really feel like it's, you know, these because you're vulnerable, you, you can become possessed by the spirit. Not just emotionally, but physically vulnerable. Whenever you're deprived in, in some way, you become vulnerable to the Wendigo. Okay, um... Let's hear from uh, another another episode of Shannon versus the Evil Evilness. We are pleased to invite you back to the Alchemical Actors Intermission Theater, featuring the continuing saga of Shannon versus the Evil Evilness. We discover Shannon in the bayous of Louisiana, where there is also a small graveyard. It is very spooky that there is a small graveyard in the middle of this spooky swamp. Mm. A mist is rising off the graves. A perfectly natural phenomenon, I'm sure. Mm. But look there! Not five feet from us. That mist appears to be taking on a distinctive shape. Why, it resembles... It resembles... Me! Gasp! Mm. Gasp! Mm. Gasp! Perhaps pontoon boat captain who doesn't say much, for you are a pontoon boat captain who doesn't say much, which is why no one would know until now that you are, in fact, a pontoon boat captain. Perhaps it is I who am I haunting myself? Perhaps I am my own evil evilness. Okay. Uh, our sources today uh, were included Robert Brightman's The Windigo in the Material World from Ethno History, Fall 1988, Algernon Blackwood's story The Wendigo, uh, and you can find Lewis Bird on OurVoices.ca. Uh, okay, let's uh, open up the Order of Confessors. It's open. It's open. <laughs> you, don't have to, you, don't, you always feel like you have to do something. You don't have to do anything. Because you always pause, and I just... I want, I'm pausing there for the gong. Like, okay, yeah, I, yeah. I was about to say there should be pause. a sound effect, but you'll add that later. Anyway. Yes. You want me to have a gong physically with me? I mean, I don't know how that would carry <laughs> on on the mic, but... I believe that we, we do have a gong in the theater, but it has been locked away since March, so it, the gong is off limits. Yeah, we're never going to see that gong again. Oh, no, don't say that. We'll be back. We'll be back sooner than later. <laughs> okay. Uh, shout out to Cat Daddy Welds, uh, who oh, sent us a comment nice. on our alchemy series. Cat Daddy Welds, yeah. Uh, 
one of our patrons uh, and uh, Cat Daddy, who is a welder, uh, he, he wanted to uh, talk a bit about the occult properties of color in minerals. He said, if you think of it in frequencies, colors represent different visible frequencies or energy levels. He says, an example is when I anodized aluminum, I use a deep, different frequency on the solution, which determines the color that appears on the aluminum. And I asked him if we could think about these different colors in metal as following the light spectrum. And he said, yeah, they're, they're very similar. Um, so coming from our alchemy series, he's, he's uh, catching up on alchemy. Damn, that's some deep welding. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm watching that Forge, Forge in the Fire or whatever on Netflix right now, and they don't get that deep. I think the welder can be a deep a deep person. They're an artist, the welders. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Jay on Patreon, also also from Patreon, points out, uh, I mentioned Harambe uh, in uh, my Satan vaccine episode. Uh, Harambe was born in Texas, but he died in Cincinnati. Thank you, Jay, for pointing that out. <laughs> Very brief reference That's, to Harambe. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I haven't thought about uh, Harambe in so long. <laughs> but there was a point when that yeah. was all we could think about. <laughs> I'm glad we have history, Harambe historians out there to keep us in check. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Mm, yes. Um, and also on Facebook, Michael A., uh, Jenny J., and Bradley G. Uh, have all been giving us uh, some lovely recommendations, and, and we want to thank them for that. Finally, um, Elisha. Elisha. I talked about, I think, Alicia on our last episode, and it is, in fact, Elisha, and Elisha is a man. How often do we do that, Olivia? We do that all the time. It's hard, man, when we're just looking at names. You never know what people are named anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Classic A Call Confessions move. Okay, uh, that's it. Let's let's bring it on home, Olivia. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. We want to thank Brandon Walls, Luke Kinneman, Andrew Mims, and Aubrey Radford for providing the voices for today's episode. Thank you all. Lovely job, as always. Uh, And y'all have been getting compliments on your Aladdin work, so uh, put that out there, too. We want to thank everybody for... We've got a lot of love on the Jin episode, so I really appreciate that. It was a really... I feel like... I mean, I'm biased, but I learned a lot on that episode. I really <laughs> thought it was a yeah, good episode. <laughs> generally, I think the group was really on. Uh, Lucy, you have also been on today. Yeah. I have? Yeah, Lucy. Way to go. <laughs> Thanks. You are been on, on, girl. Yes. <laughs> wow. I think we'll have Lucy back, don't you? We'll, we'll let Lucy do this again. I'll allow it. Really? Thanks. <laughs> I miss you guys. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. I, I really wish we could be together for this kind of thing. But this is the closest we can get. I feel like we get closer doing these. We at least hold the bond to the community. So that's Lucy Bond, speaking of bonds. Yeah, I was about to say. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us at the mic, Lucy. Thanks for having me. And Olivia Litterall, our Grandmaster. Goodbye, everyone. Me, my name is Rob C. Thompson. Join us next time. Uh, Bree and John will be with me to discuss shadow people and uh, nightmares. And then, Olivia, uh, I think it's time to let the good people know that uh, once we've accomplished that, the next step for us is our final uh, series for the year, which is going to be about chaos magic. Yes. You all, I feel like, are maybe been waiting for this, so... <laughs> I think a lot of people Here have. There you go. 
Um, I, I think there are a lot of people on, in our, among our, our confessors who are way into chaos magic, so we're going to be doing that. For those of you who are not, um, we are going to go slow on this, and uh, we're going to be doing some history of chaos magic, and then some folks who were inspired by chaos magic. So there's really only one episode proper that's just about chaos magic. Uh, but I really feel like it's been poorly handled by other podcasts. Um, and, and by that, I don't mean podcasts who are focused on chaos magic, but rather, uh, you know, podcasts like ours who like, have dabbled in it have done a, a pretty poor job of the history of chaos magic. So you we're going to clean that up. You can get lost in the, the technicalities, too, I think. Yeah, yeah. So uh, barring listening to a chaos magic podcast, of which there are a few, uh, this is going to be the next best step. As far as the history of chaos magic, I feel like um, we're, we're going to give you the best job we can here. Uh, so again, that's that's in a, about a month from now, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you there. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time here on A Call Confessions. Bye. Bye.